Hi everyone, I'm Tanya Luna, a psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I eat frosted flakes for dinner. And you're listening to Talk Talk Psych Psych to Me, me, a show where I explain research and theories from the field of psychology. And I try to keep up. Let's get into it. Alright, so today we're talking about self-control. Uh-oh. What is it? Why it matters? (laughs) How to get it if you don't have it? How to get it. How would you categorize your self-control, Brian? I think I have pretty good self-control, unless we're talking about like Dr. Pepper or cookies or something like that. I, I have, I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, what is self-control? Uh, I'm sure there, what we're going to get into, you're going to tell me there's many levels and there's uh, uh, Q2 high octane levels of, or whatever. Why do I sound like the guy voice from the last episode? <laughs> That's your that's our standard that's our standard <laughs> voice for each other whenever we were mocking each other but trying not to make it sound like we're mocking each other. Okay. No, okay. Getting back to self control. I don't know how much self control I do or don't have. It's not like I'm out there just doing, you know, running buckshot, doing whatever the hell I want to do. So I have self control when it comes to like temper and stuff like that. I think. I know you're looking at me funny, but I think I do. Uh, but I don't Which have like self control when it comes to like reactions. Like if I'm watching football or something and, you know, the Cowboys miss the playoffs again and I start yelling at the TV, it's not something I can do. Or when you tell me that I yell at the, at, when I'm playing video games and you're like, uh, which you, you're yelling, you're yelling. I don't know I'm yelling. Like, it's not like I'm like, I'm trying to yell. I'm going out to yell. So I don't, now that you asked me that, I don't know what my self, my low self-control. Okay, like, maybe this is an easier question. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of my self-control? Would you consider me someone who has a massive amount of willpower? I, when it comes to food, no. But when it comes to motion regularity, yes, you do. You have incredible amounts of self-control. You don't let yourself really get too upset and if it does, it happens in a quick instant and you hurt your neck. Yeah, last time but... I got upset, I had to go to the physical therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really so, embarrassing. Wait, I got to tell you that I got to tell you guys what This is happened. how rarely I experience so, strong emotions. She, I, I don't remember what it was. It was, I was going to go walk the dogs. You were rushing me. I was rushing you. That's what it was. <laughs> no, we were leaving. Yeah, we we're going to the grocery store or something or, or to buy records. Something really like not important. And I was like, come on, you you know, like, and that's the thing is you're a very slow leaver. Like you're great at everything else, but when it comes to leaving I'm fast a place, at starting, I'm slow at leaving. Leaving, it takes you forever to just get from your coat to the door. Okay, and just for people listening, would you quantify forever? Forever. <laughs> like so, how many minutes do you, does it take me? From, uh, okay, I've ca- last time I counted it, it took you 18.3 minutes <laughs> to leave the house. From the moment you, you grab your coat, something happens to you where you just hit this weird, like, um, <laughs> and everything is just slow. And I'm like, am I, am I the flash? Like, what am I experiencing? This is, everything's going so fast and you are just dragging behind. Anyway, so we're leaving. And you got so upset with me because I was rushing you, which I wasn't really rushing you. I wasn't trying to make you go fast. I was trying to make you go normal speed. <laughs> and you flipped out and you just, in one minute, you, your whole body got tense. And you're like, watch it. And you screamed. And even the, the dog stopped, the cat, everybody. And then later on, when we got in the car, you were like, 
ow. <laughs> you had pulled a muscle yelling at me. And I have to say, I take pride in that, that I can make someone physically <laughs> in pain. Wow. Uh, yeah, just without even, t- I didn't even touch you. It I was didn't really do awkward to explain it to everyone because I had my, I hurt my neck so bad that I had really limited mobility. And <laughs> the next day everyone was like, what happened? I was like, I felt an emotion. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, emotion regulation. You have very, very high levels of self-control. But when it comes to like, like, if there's a pie in the house, what happens to that pie? It's gone. Why? It's in my face. Do I eat any pie? You don't like pie, so I think that's a trick question. Okay. Our, our friend Maddie, he has, uh, what, what's his motto? Bake a cake. Eat a cake. Eat a cake. And, and, and that's, that's how he That's his it. whole life motto? That's or? every, I mean, it's gotten here so far. So thinking about Matt, thinking about me, thinking about yourself and Dr. Pepper, <laughs> um, what do you think self-control is? I, I want to say self-control is that tiny little voice. I don't know why it has to be so tiny, but can you it's do a, the voice? Hey, stop, guy! <laughs> hey, come on, pull back. Um, I think uh, self-control is that little so voice creepy. in you. <laughs> I know, my, mine's no creepy. No wonder I don't. My have... self-control voice is creepy, but I think it, 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 it's something in you that like keeps you from going over the edge or keeps you from getting hurt. I think self-control keeps you from overeating, keeps you from overfeeling, keeps you. It's maybe it's a safety mechanism of some kind that we don't always listen to. So psychologists have actually been debating this question for a very long time. What is self-control? How do you get it? How do you measure it? Can you improve it? So today I'll share with you some of the theories and studies on that topic, starting with part one of three, losing yourself. I'm going to take you way back for this to a hot, sticky, sweltering August (laughs) afternoon in 1963. Sounds like the beginning of a Neil Diamond song. What is a hot August night? Please <laughs> breaking down the grass on the ground. <laughs> so a gentleman named Richard Ricky Robles. Are you familiar with this individual? Richard Ricky Robles? <laughs> well, he so he went by Ricky. Okay, so anyway, Ricky, he's an accomplished burglar. He's burgled at least 100 times. He just gets out of prison, and he allegedly plans to give it up, but he just wants to do one more burglary different accounts it's either because he wants to buy drugs or he wants to help his girlfriend and their three-year-old daughter i actually do know ricky he's my uncle (laughs) so ricky robles he breaks into an apartment on the upper east side in new york city Mm -hmm. uh where two women live janice wiley who's 21 years old emily hoffert who's 23 years old and it turns out one of them is home it's janice okay and as he's tying her up and threatening her with a knife Emily comes home. Hmm. Awkward. (laughs) So he starts tying her up too. And then Janice says something to the effect of, I've seen your face. I'm going to tell the police and they're going to find you. Wow. One way to do it. Yeah. So it wouldn't be recommended. (laughs) Don't say that if you're tied up. So Ricky freaks out because this is supposed to be his last burglary. He finds a bottle of soda, clubs both women until they're unconscious. With a bottle of soda? Yeah. Then <laughs> worst ways to go, I guess. Okay, but then he grabs a kitchen knife and yeah. he stabs them over and over and over. There you go. That's it. That's the oh, that's the worst way I was talking about. <laughs> Later, eventually, when he confesses to this, he says, "I just went bananas. Quote: My head just exploded." So the reason I'm familiar with this case is that psychologist Daniel Goleman writes about it in his book on emotional intelligence, and his explanation of this crime is what he calls neural hijacking. Or, as you might have heard me refer to it in the past, amygdala hijack. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, in short, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so in short, the amygdala is this little part of the brain that processes a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. If it senses a threat, it draws resources away from the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for making good decisions, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it sends all those resources to the limbic system, which is responsible for reacting. Are y'all getting all this? There's going to be a test in four minutes. So, <laughs> so basically your brain is like, danger, don't think, do. Yeah, so basically what's, what's happening, let me just break this down. An incident happens that's affecting you. Your brain takes resources from logic and understanding and making good decisions and puts it in like hands or feet, right? So either I'm going to run yes. or I'm going to fight. Yes. All right. That's a good, that's a great way to put it. I guess my first question is, do you think that's a viable defense for Ricky Robles? Are you saying, do I think he's justified? Does the defense hold water? Um, (laughs) The defense is wrong. The defense is wrong. No, I don't think it's a viable defense. But his amygdala did it. Is, is one of Right. I think that's what you're saying. Like, it's it's no different than saying that I was possessed. It's no different than saying that I was like... It's uh, a little different. Well, no. I mean, it is, it is, but it isn't. Like, it, you're just using science in place of something supernatural. But one, but you can actually see in neural imaging studies, the you could see this happening. You could see the amygdala get activated. You can see the prefrontal cortex essentially shut down. But I think the, def- the, the defense of that is we all experience this and not all of us are killing and tying up women and stabbing them to death. But I do think it does affect people in different ways like in different levels I, I should say like I probably experienced the same thing uh, not 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 that thing I'm not talking about I want to tie up women I mean I've experienced things where like my emotions got the better of me and I couldn't control myself when I was a lot younger and, and I think it, it it led to a lot of like violent tendencies and things like that but I wouldn't use it as a defense for murder and so expect you're saying to. We should take the amygdala is kind of part of the self, right? Right, take, and and, and I think yeah, that. it's just like uh, having a bad heart. You can't measure everyone's physical ability at the at the same because we're all at different levels physically as well. So like the amygdala is part of the brain, valves are part of the heart. You can't measure everyone the same. And I think the court system would agree with you because they make a distinction between kind of thoughtful or thoughtless crimes. And let me guess, bye bye, Ricky. Yeah, Ricky didn't fare so well. <laughs> but I think actually... He locked that amygdala up. But I think it's really interesting because essentially the worst thing you could do is premeditated murder, which is basically logical, you know, you thought yeah. about it. Then next to that is manslaughter, which just sounds awful, but it's a crime of passion. I think it sounds worse than murder, manslaughter. It does, right? Yeah. And then after that is involuntary manslaughter, which is basically like uh, hitting someone with a car. For example, when you're drinking. And that's where this is so interesting because it's essentially to what extent did you intend to do it? And then to what extent did you plan to do it? And our legal system basically says if it's thoughtful, it's bad. And then the less thinking you did, the less... The better it is. The better it is. The less (laughs) of a punishment there is. But what do you think about that? As just as a quick aside, do you think that works as a legal system? The more thoughtful you are about your crimes, the more you should be punished? I think it's a a big loophole. When you commit a violent act, the more violent it is, the more likely you are to say, oh, well, I was out of my, completely out of my brains when I did it and more likely to get off. But that's an interesting defense, right? I am less guilty because I was less in position of myself. Right, because I have no control over me. But then you shouldn't be... if you have zero control, you shouldn't be around other people anyway. So, so amygdala hijacks don't just lead to manslaughter. They also happen 
obviously all the time, as you know, in everyday life. I actually wrote down a few celebrity amygdala hijack moments to share with you. Does alcohol and drugs count? No. So these are all incidents where, to our knowledge, these individuals weren't on some sort of mind-altering substance. Okay. Okay. Let's go trivia style. All right, here we go. This famous tennis player... Andre Agassi. I have to John McEnroe. I have to finish it. Okay. This finished... This... (laughs) He's finished. This (laughs) famous tennis player Mm -hmm. destroyed a tennis racket on the court after being accused of being coached from the stands in the 2008 Open Final. Federer? No. Uh, John McEnroe. You're going to feel so sexist. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, Serena Williams. (laughs) Serena Williams? Yes. Was it because I said sexist? No, 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 no. Because I immediately when I think of... I was like, this famous athlete, you're like, man, 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 man. No, 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 that's not... Oh, another man. No, you said famous tennis player, and this was a bad behavior, and I don't know any female bad behavior tennis players. The most famous one is John McEnroe. Like, he was like a big jerk in in tennis. Okay, this worldwide soccer role model headbutted another player in the 2006 (laughs) World Cup soccer finals. I don't know, it's a French guy. Yeah, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he played for France. I remember. I don't remember. I don't know his name. He's yeah. In French, he's known as Zizo. Yes, and he hit him in the chest, and the guy went down. Okay, this athlete bit this other athlete. Come on, man! <laughs> in a 1997 fight, Mike Tyson. Who did he bite? I, I'm very sorry. I bit uh, uh, Vander Holyfield. <laughs> I saw that fight. Can it you think amazing. of any others? So any other people he bit? Are, no. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, can you think of any other kind of famous uh, amygdala hijack moments? But yeah, I mean, these I mean, could but, be but positive it, it's, as well. It's, um, I, this, um, this is one from Daniel Goldman's book. He says, Dan Jensen, uh, he wins the 1995 Winter Olympics after many, many failures. And his wife was so happy that she had to be rushed to the hospital. Talk about taking your moment. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, this guy, after how many attempts, like maybe 16 years, he finally gets it. And, and everyone's like, all Let's, about herself. Yeah, it's all about me. Oh, I'm going to the hospital. Can you think of any amygdala hijack moments you've had, for example? Yes. I remember ages ago, we were we were having a nice walk through the park, and this guy ran by and said something to you. He I said something this. to you. Yeah. It's kind of inappropriate. Very inappropriate. Something just happened. I, I physically, like, lunch for him, and if you hadn't grabbed my arm, I think I'd still be choking him. And this was years ago, so <laughs> this would be very... Does that mean you're very, very weak or very, very <laughs> persistent? He wouldn't have noticed. Uh, let me just play something for you. Maybe you can diagnose this for me. Use the right lane to take exit 14 for I-95, George Washington Bridge toward Expressway, West 178th Street. No. Oh, that's The regret. That is The regret. My favorite yeah. band. Um, That's easy. Yeah. Just keep listening. Okay. You want to know why there's traffic? Like right this. Lane. Oh, 35 miles an hour on the highway. Then get off the fucking highway. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what's going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> what was that that we just listened to? <laughs> That's, um, uh, someone doing a really good impression of me. Uh, uh so, okay, all right, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> When I drive, I have a little bit of a lead foot. And for some reason, when I when people drive slow in the highway or when they like, I don't know, I, I, I have a tendency to get triggered when I drive. And I don't know if that's a Texas thing. I don't know if that's a... And what do you feel when that's happening? What's physiologically going on with you? Because you say some pretty vile things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was really tame. Um, this was very tame. This is very tame. By the way, I've been recording you for the past two weeks. <laughs> and I've, I can't... 
I can't use half of the recordings yeah. because... And I would never be able to run for office if awful. any of that got out. And I, we're trapped in this tiny vehicle together and just like my sweet little husband, we're, we're singing along, we're having fun, and all of a sudden it's just this rage monster. I know. I What happens to me is... I what get, are some of the physiological symptoms? My I get my hands feel like tiny little boulders, like they, they just feel rock hard and my shoulders and my arms and back just get all tensed up. My thighs and my calves tense up too. I just feel like I want to get out of the car and, and just and run or scream and flip that other car over. I feel like I'm tearing out of myself. Yeah. I don't I don't have any like sweat. Um I feel hot, hot but not but hot not rage. like sweating, yeah. I have hot another rage. one that I recorded. Yeah. Oh no. What is this one? This Are they all in the this car? Better. This this is all in the car. <laughs> Come on, y'all. It goes on. <laughs> the whole song. Maybe that's we'll, Paul Revere. What? We can post it as a bonus episode. You... Question is, how do you avoid amygdala hijacking? Um, okay, so this is something no, that... No, I was going to... That was... Oh. Um, I didn't know you were going to get no, all science. No, go ahead. I, you tell me. No, no, no. Please, by all means. You're the scientist. Okay, well, I guess the spoiler alert is you you can't. <laughs> okay, goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> you need it because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes there's there's real threats. You, you, you don't want to get rid of it all the way, but you can reduce how easily your amygdala becomes triggered, especially by non-life-threatening events. And this is called amygdala down-regulating. Or... Calming down. <laughs> okay, so number one is actually amygdala some... downgrading. Anyway, um, so the first step is something you already did, which is you notice what it feels like to be triggered. Mm-hmm. It's also really helpful to know when you will be triggered. So, for example, in recording your road rage incidents, I knew when it was going to start to happen. Yeah, I was about to ask you, like, how did you? See... What were the signs? <laughs> it was it was traffic <laughs> <laughs> getting in the car, and it was specific <laughs> intersections that I know. Really... <laughs> Trigger you. Going into Jersey. So that's number one is know your triggers. Know what it's like when you feel triggered. Yeah. So that's good. You're doing great. Thank you. Next, you want to have an if-then rule for yourself when you do feel it. So for example, if I feel triggered, then take a break from whatever I'm doing. If I'm triggered, my rule is do not press the send button in Gmail. Oh, that's great. That's great. Mine has been in the car. When I get triggered, I flip through a song that makes me want to sing. That's great. So like... um. That, I didn't do it in that moment because I don't think we had the radio on. Oh, we did. We were listening to the radio. This was a bumping and that girlies were hot. This dude was staring like he knows who we are. We took every spot next to him okay, at the bar. Okay, that's amygdala. Um, so, uh, <laughs> down, down-regulating so, song. No, but like I have, a, I have a ton of songs that I actually love to sing in the car. And, um, and that really does help me. Or I can look over and see you and Huckleberry, you know, sitting there. And that really chills me out a little bit. That's really sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. Actually, oxytocin, it's the like um, cuddle chemical is what it's known as <laughs> can counteract amygdala activation so really mm-hmm, so like uh but how does that how does that work because when my amygdala is hijacked i don't want to cuddle and i don't want anyone when your amygdala me. hijacks your brain yeah so for example if you picked up a baby which is i'm gonna pick up a baby in that moment <laughs> someone's gonna give me their baby hey liz drew can i hold your can i hold your baby no i don't think that's what else you got well okay you could just <laughs> Think of a baby, or you can look over and, Think and of a see baby. Huckleberry. You can see Huckleberry. Yeah, okay. 
But but you don't mean physically. You don't cuddle. have to cuddle. It's okay. just known as a cuddle chemical because oxytocin is released in times of that close physical. Connection. I hope people aren't grabbing babies when they're feeling like that to calm themselves down. Like <laughs> in another episode, maybe we'll talk about this. It turns out that when men hold babies, for example, their testosterone levels drop and their oxytocin levels increase. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Come on, just what? have a baby in the back seat <laughs> for emergencies. <laughs> okay, so so the point is you want to just disengage somehow from the thing that's triggering you. Mm-hmm. And pro tips, if you re-engage in something that you find calming, or at the very least, you can just take some deep breaths. Okay. I, I also think about those moments where you can't really disengage. Like if you are in a confrontation, you know, and, and something is happening and the moment you disengage, you kind of like run the risk of getting hurt if you're not hyper aware. Because I think when your amygdala hijacks your brain, I also think it makes you hyper aware and keeps you safe from danger. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't want to get rid of it. Again, it's kind of like you just don't want it to pop up when you're not actually threatened. Yeah. That's oh, that's true. That's true. <clears throat> that makes sense. So the last thing that I'll just mention is you can also concentrate on preventative measures, mm-hmm. which is really the best approach. So, for example, drugs. Medi- uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Like weed, I would Pro- imagine. That's a good question. Chills you out enough. I would that- imagine. I don't know research on it, but that makes sense because it's a, it's a. Well, is weed a stimulant or a depressant? I'm just looking this up right now. Mm-hmm. It's classified as a depressant, stimulant, and hallucinogen. <laughs> I guess it depends. Freaking science. On... It's classified as anything that we need it to be in that moment. No, so it does slow your brain function. Mm-hmm. I guess depending on what kind of weed you take, it can also do other stuff. I do so... the blue monster. Just kidding. I don't smoke. I just totally made that up. I just like making up names anyway, for weed. Uh, if you don't want to get high or if you can't afford to get high, there is meditation. There's neurofeedback. So you can actually train your amygdala to downregulate by becoming more aware of when your amygdala is hyperactive. There's also overall stress and anxiety management. So it turns out that individuals with PTSD, for example, have a constantly active amygdala. Hmm. So I can see that. the more overall stress and anxiety you're experiencing, the more likely you are to snap. Iron, anyway. Man, Iron Man's underwear. I'm just like giving names to certain types of weed. I love the na- like the name. So oh. throughout the whole podcast, I'm just going to come up with names that could be types of weed. Uncle Mary Jane's baby. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like one that would really knock you on your ass. <laughs> okay, so amygdala hijacking is an extreme case of losing self-control. Mm-hmm. But what about everyday micro actions of self-control? So this question brings us to part two of three. Okay. Resisting temptation. Ooh. So we're going to start this section by recreating a study I worked on for about a year of my career as a researcher. Okay. What? I thought you were like resisting temptation, something I've been working on. No. Is this this how you want to bring this up? I mean an Welcome to our podcast, Dirty Laundry (laughs) and How to Air It. No, this is actually a study that goes back to the 1970s, originally conducted by psychologist Walter Michel at Stanford. I think you're already familiar with it. It's called Mm. the Marshmallow Test. Unfortunately, I don't have big marshmallows. I have a bag of mini marshmallows here. Love. These are called dandies. We're not trying to pitch anything, but um, these are actually vegan marshmallows, and they're called dandies, and they are delicious. So I'm just going to eat a few because <laughs> they're really good. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> okay, Brian. Yes. Smell this. You can smell it from there. It smell good? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to put one marshmallow right in front of you here. Yep. And if you... <laughs> You can't just eat it. You didn't say it. You didn't say anything. Spit it out. Ugh. 
<laughs> you have to be specific. The experiment is ruined. You have to be. Ex- you have to be. Okay, I'm gonna All put right. a new squishy, mm. delicious, soft, pillowy yes. marshmallow okay. in front of you. Don't eat it. <laughs> okay. See, that's how you should have started that. Okay. Here's the thing, though. You do have a choice. Okay. You can eat it right away, yeah. or or you can wait until we're done with this episode, and I will give you wait, several what, more marshmallows. What's stopping me from reaching over and pulling those marshmallows out of your hand? You, what's stopping you? I don't know. Decorum? <laughs> you can decide. You can eat that one right now, or if you wait until we're done, you can have more dandies. If you wait, because I'll eat done. this one now. If you're going to eat that bag in front of me, that's not fair. <laughs> All right, I'll stop right now. So you, so you just shove four in your mouth. <laughs> to be honest, how many are left? To be honest, this is not part of the experiment. It's just delicious. Okay, so okay, I'm, I'm going to stop eating them. I'm going to wait. You're going to wait? I think so. Okay, great. So your choice is to wait. Right. I don't know. I want more me. dandy. I don't want this one little dandy and you finish the bag. Yeah. All right. Fine. Okay. Here. Can I, Can you hold it over there? <laughs> so you just you just move the marsh- marshmallow The marshmallow is now sitting next to you. Okay. Right? So over the years, researchers have found that preschoolers who were able to resist temptation and wait for 15 to 20 minutes, you cannot put the marshmallow in the microphone. Marshmallow's on the microphone. You've ruined our microphone. No. <laughs> Anyway, so this is what they found. The kids who were able to wait 15 to 20 minutes, they later in life had better SAT scores. They showed less aggression, used fewer drugs, and were healthier. And even 40 years later, after the original research, they demonstrated better self-control. Most of the people I grew up with would have eaten that marshmallow already. Actually, what you're bringing up is super interesting. Tell me a little bit about what's going on right now. Right now, I can't keep my eyes off that marshmallow. (laughs) I'm, I'm drooling a little bit. I don't know. It's it's hard to focus. Uh, this was to... one of my favorite pieces of research that I was ever involved in. <laughs> I used to work with three-year-olds and five-year-olds doing this, and you would leave the room for 15 minutes, and then we would watch them, you know, from mm-hmm. uh, behind a two-way glass. Mm-hmm. Why are they called two-way glass? Because you can see one way and not the other way. Okay. Because one-way glass is you just reflecting. <laughs> it makes sense to me now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Science. So we would watch them, and sometimes we'd have their parents watch them, and we'd, it was just so funny. Like the kids would do. Actually, some of the things you did were great. What did you do? Talk us through some of your strategies so far. Moved it away from me. Yeah, um, that's the first thing you did. Awesome. We're gonna get back to that because that's yeah. really. You put it on the microphone. I'm not sure about what that strategy is about. Well, because I was hoping you would eat it, and then it would be out of my way. <laughs> so, it was like a chess game. Yeah. <laughs> so if if you saw it and you were there, you'd be like. Ah. And then just grab it and eat it. And I was like, all right. So then that's my marshmallow. I don't have to worry about it. But then you started staring at it. Yeah. Which is dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. The kids who would stare at the marshmallow. I don't even remember what you were talking to me about when (laughs) when I was... Because I know you were talking and I was like, I should be listening because she's probably going to ask. But yeah. So the kids who who would spend a lot of time paying attention to the marshmallow would usually eat the marshmallow. Mm -hmm. The kids were really good at it. They would like turn away from the marshmallow. One kid sat on the marshmallow. And it was a marshmallow? These kids were freaking out over a marshmallow? I'm were sorry. these like what were we just saying? Before? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I'm just like I would have done it for like a slice of pizza. Like that would that's an experiment. Like put a piece of pizza in front of me, yeah. and then be like, "Don't touch it," well, and you get more pizza. To and be I, fair, this is designed for three year olds and five year olds, so right, yeah. Oh, you picked up on something that researchers did not pick up on for over 40 years. Um, and that's the concept that delay of gratification is super important, but there's a twist. Hmm. 
So in 2018, researchers Watts, Duncan, and Kwan do a similar study, mm -hmm. but this time, instead of recruiting kids from university preschools, which is what the original studies okay. looked at, and actually a lot of the research looked at kids from educated, high socioeconomic status families. Okay. So they look at almost a thousand young kids from more mixed backgrounds, and right. here's what they find. So if you do a side-by-side -side comparison of kids who have similar socioeconomic status and parent education level, if one of them is better at waiting, it doesn't really predict anything. Okay. So in other words, whether you're willing to wait for a marshmallow might have less to do with self-control, and it has more to do with your background and your environment. Hmm. And I'll give you a little bit more insight into this. So another study, this is actually done in 2013 by researchers Kidd, Palmieri, and Aslan. Here's what they did. Actually, I'm going to recreate a little part of this experiment with you. Okay, so for this study, I'm actually going to give you something really cool. All right, pizza? No, it's not. Is it really a gift or is this going to be one of those things where you're like, no, there's no gift? It's actually a gift certificate to Comixology. No, really? So I'm going to email it to you right now. Because for all I know, you could have taken this off the internet and taken a picture. I won't, I won't move forward with this study unless I know for sure this is a legit active code. Um, I know you. I know you, Luna. Okay, so unfortunately, the embarrassing news is uh, I used our old credit card. So I don't have the gift certificate. You wow. Again, I'm sorry. Damn. See, I knew I should have checked first. I ain't doing no experiment, okay. Doc. You're going to have to imagine that you got the gift. Imagine that you got the gift. Then imagine I passed the experiment. <laughs> okay, never mind. So, okay, let's go back to the marshmallow. Okay. If you wait until we're done, I'm going to give you not just another set of marshmallows. Yeah. I will buy you a slice of pizza. What do you do? What am I, three years old or five years old? I should put my. I can get my own goddamn pizza. <laughs> How about this? If I wait... There's no wheeling and dealing. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Come on. Let's negotiate. Ten minutes at Main Street Comics in uh, in Middletown. <laughs> Ten minutes to grab whatever I want. Okay. So here's what happened in the study. The researchers... Yes? Are you uh, doing this? Let me answer you once I tell you about the study, okay? So here's my wheeling and dealing. If you wait 30 seconds, I'll finish the study. <laughs> If I have to wait 32 seconds, <laughs> I've created a monster. <laughs> okay, so researchers did the same marshmallow <laughs> test, but before the test, they do something really sneaky. They either make a promise and keep it or make a promise and break it. So, for example, they give the kids these really crappy, old, broken-down crayons, yeah. and then they say, oh, you know what? I have a fresh new box of, like, really great big crayons. Let me come right back and bring it to you. And then they come back, and they're like, oh, never mind. We don't have that box. And then they do some other stuff like that. Yeah. And then they do the marshmallow test. And so this is what they found. Can I guess? Yeah. If they broke a promise, that marshmallow was gone. Yeah. So yeah. the kids who were lied to or, or yeah. experienced the broken promise, they waited for only about three minutes. Yeah. Whereas the kids where the adults kept the promise, they waited about 12 minutes. You on know average. why? Because that marshmallow represents a middle finger to the, to the doctors. So if they're, if they're like, oh, you didn't <laughs> give me my crayons. Or the, the researchers. Right. You didn't give me that crayon. Well, here's my, I'm too young to give you the middle finger without getting in trouble, so I'm going to eat this marshmallow. Okay, so you think it was I, an act of aggression? I, I don't think it's an act of aggression. I also think that it's it's like, how can you trust them if they're like, oh, when we come back, if you leave this alone, we're going to give you two marshmallows. They're like, no, you're not, because you didn't give me the goddamn crayon. So you talked about your, you said before that if this marshmallow was given to any of the kids that you grew up with, yeah. the marshmallow would be gone. Yeah. So the leading theory now about the marshmallow test and delay of gratification is that it's a symptom of how predictable and stable your environment was. Yeah. So meaning it's not so much a personality trait, it's more like 
as a kid, if you had an unstable environment, it's really not in your best interest to exercise delay yeah. of gratification Absolutely. because how do you know if it's still going to be there? 100%. I agree. I remember watch, when I watched the study and I was a little like, yeah, whatever. I didn't buy it because all those kids look very confident. Like they were talking and they were like, oh, and blah, blah, blah. That means their parents listen to them and all that stuff. But the way I grew up, our parents didn't listen to us. Our parents, you know, rightly tell us to shut up and all this other stuff. If we were talking, even if we're talking about something interesting. I remember telling my, my mom about the freaking, uh, the one fish, two fish, red fish. And she was like, yeah, with the fish. You know, she was like, okay, with the goddamn fish. I know there's red fish and blue fish. Yeah, I know. I know. I know about the goddamn fish. And I'd be like, all right, well, I'm. I'm six. This is all I got. I don't have anything. I don't have a job, you know? So anyway, my point is, is that when these studies, whenever I see these studies in these kids, they all look well to do or the kids look like if you want to experiment and get a good idea, like go into these, go into the places I grew up, you know, go into the neighborhoods well, I so grew up in. So that's what and, researchers are now getting much better at because the truth of the matter is that a lot of research is done within universities mm-hmm. on undergraduate or graduate students, which is already kind of a, a small subset of the population. And even with kids, it's often the kids of the professors or yeah, you know, I mean, that they're recruiting from around that area. And, and plus, like when you don't have a lot to eat, anytime you get an opportunity to eat, you're going to eat. You're not going to wait for more food or you can, the way, the way I would do it, I would eat that and try to talk my way into a second marshmallow when the doctor came back in <laughs> hell yeah i would you know because i was like well he's got marsh he's got enough i know he's got another one because he had one there if i didn't eat this one so i would eat that one he'd come in i'd be like you know what happened a rat came in and ate my marshmallow <laughs> i didn't even get that i still want to know what kind of doctor this is <laughs> like, whatever doctor why is there a marshmallow doctor administering marshmallows <laughs> <laughs> Dr. holding Stay marshmallows Puff. you know i'm saying like dr dr puff or no whatever. i hear you i hear you, know you. What i'm saying i mean that's why this is so interesting because you hear delay of gratification you sort of immediately assume good but it makes sense that if we can't trust our environment yeah. then we especially have to grab what we li- have right now right i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but especially if they lie to you right off the bat yeah hell yeah not only would i take the marshmallow i'd go for the researcher's wallet or i'd steal something <laughs> from the room hell yeah <laughs> Okay, so we're learning, obviously, that self-control is a lot more complicated than we used to think. But there are times where self-control is really important and where it could really benefit us. The bad news is that self-control training seems to have very little impact. But here's the good news as we move into part three of three of this episode, Outsmarting Ourselves. A study conducted by Marina Milovskaya and her team found that people who are best at resisting temptation didn't actually have better self-control than average. They were just better than average at reducing their exposure to temptation. It makes me think of what psychologist Sean Anker calls activation energy. So he says 10 seconds is all it takes. So if you want to stop doing something, make it 10 seconds harder. If you want to start doing something, make it 10 seconds easier. This is like, if you remember the article I wrote for HBR with Jordan Cohen on Mm. the banana principle. No, yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. You know, if you walk around people's offices, if they give out free fruit, the bananas always go first and the oranges are never eaten. So when it comes to self-control, it's almost less of a question of, how do I resist temptation in the moment? It's more about how can I create an environment for myself where the things I don't want to do are more like oranges, meaning they're hard to peel, they're hard to get into, yeah. they're hard to start. But the good things, the things I want to do more of are more like bananas. Yeah. There's some really great hacks for self-control that researchers have come across. So here's a fun study by Catherine Milkman and her team. They call this Hunger Games Hostage at the Gym. So they found that participants were significantly more likely to go to the gym if they were banned from listening to their favorite audiobooks, unless they were at the gym. Yeah, yeah. So the, the people whose books were held hostage, they went to the gym 51% more than the control group. 
I'm really into this podcast called Crime Junkies right now. If you're listening, I love Crime Junkies. It's great. But what I use it to do is if I have like a, a project here at home that I'm really putting off, I tell myself, well, I've got nine episodes in the pipe ready to go and I can't listen to one unless I either work out so. or, uh, you know, put up the, the hang bars or fix this thing outside and do all this stuff. So it really, really motivates me. I get up in the morning. I'm like, oh, my God, I want to find out what happened to this victim. It forces me to get up out of bed and do this particular thing. So awesome. put it high on the list. So it's almost like don't give yourself a certain reward unless you're doing the thing that you want to get yourself well, to do. Y- y'all call it the banana principle. It's also known as like the, the dangling carrot, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, you give yourself something to motivate you to pull yourself forward but to, what's to co- do. What's cool about what you do is that you are the one dangling your own carrot. I'm sorry, that sounds really, really lewd. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's another fitness one. This one has had a huge impact on my life. So researchers gave participants a diet and exercise challenge. And every time they wanted to give in to temptation, one group was told to say, I can't. And another group was told to say, I don't. And it turned out that 10% of the can't people reach their wellness goal, but 80% of the don't people reach their goal. It was a small sample size, but I found this to be incredibly effective for myself when I switched to eating vegan. Mm -hmm. So I used to say things like, oh, I can't eat cheese. And now I'm really deliberate about saying I don't eat cheese. Right. Why do you think that Well, I think don't gives you more control over it. Don't gives you more power. So I think that a huge piece of it is autonomy. I think another piece of it from a behavior change perspective, from a self-control perspective, is an identity thing too. Um, so the, yeah, that... you, you mentioned this before, and, and I, I don't, I don't know that I've gotten there yet with the vegetarian thing, but but please continue. Yeah, yeah well, I was just going to share the study by Christopher Braun and Gabriel Adams. They did these experiments where people would basically had the option to cheat to get money from the study, and in one condition, the researchers said, "Please don't cheat," and in another condition, they said, "Please don't be a cheater." Because... I would imagine don't cheat. People cheated more in cheater. Sounds like a like almost like a judgment on you know the person. So yeah, so I link the don't research with kind of the same. I think you're right. There's an autonomy component, but there's also an identity component yeah. where yeah, you're like, I'm not someone who does that. I'm not someone who cheats, and that made it much less likely that they cheated. Interesting. I guess that makes sense too. Like being a vegetarian, especially where I come from, is very uh, difficult. I, you know, from Texas, there are many. I'm not saying there aren't there because the people are going to be writing in or not writing in, but you know, people are going, I'm a vegetarian. I'm saying the majority of people. There's so many voices on this show. So that many voices. That's the Texas voice. uh, <laughs> like whiny voice. Uh, but like, I'm a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. But I do think that it's not just being a cheater or being a vegetarian. It's all the other negative connotations that come with that. Because that's the newest change in my identity um, in the last year or two was going back to vegetarian and actually telling myself why I did it. You're right. The identity thing helped because I, at first I was telling myself I was doing it because I was doing it for health reasons or I wanted to feel better, which is true. It's absolutely true. But the reality is moving up to this house and seeing all the the animals and, and like I, I started to see meat in a different capacity. Like we have rabbits and we have foxes. Seeing how scared they are, seeing how skittish they are and also seeing how trusting they can be when you feed them and, and take care of them. And I don't know, it just flipped something in my mind that I was like, you know what? I don't want to eat anything with a face right now. And that's never happened before. Well, even just looking at this list again, it's like, what did you do to remove temptation? I remember you got rid of all of the meat that we had. Yeah, in, in, one, in one fell swoop. 
I, so, I went through and I threw everything away. Uh, I don't know if you did anything where you were like, I will only listen to this podcast when I eat a vegetable. No, I didn't do anything <laughs> like that. I just didn't start. Having- <laughs> I just didn't want to starve. I want to eat. Um, so I. But we had really, we started having really fun meals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were very helpful in that and like opening me up to different things. I, I just, I don't remember that I did a, a dangling, <laughs> gross dangling carrot. You but dangled your carrot. I dangled my carrot. But I, I did remember wanting to get excited about food again. You know, and because everything had gotten so monotonous and become a vegetarian, now there's so much out there. You know, there's so many other things like Beyond and Impossible that it really got me excited to try new things. And and, and not only that, like I was, I'm eating things that I didn't eat as a meat eater, eating like So that's a bit of, of a carrot dangling for you because it's kind of like treating yourself to kind of more adventure. More, yeah. More enjoyment. Trying to eat more like an adult, you know, <laughs> instead of like... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's your old SpaghettiOs. And I remember getting excited because I was like, oh, my God, you came home one night. And I remember you, you were laughing because you opened the cupboard. And I had found the SpaghettiOs with the little Franks in them, yeah. which I used to love. And I bought like almost 13, 14 cans because I've never, I hadn't seen them in a long time. And I found them. I four, you opened it up and there was 14 cans. I was like, this is awesome. And I was like, I can't. Like whip this out if I'm, uh, you know, if we have people over. Hey, anybody want some <laughs> SpaghettiOs with Franks? And I, you know, so so I wanted to expand my horizons, but I'm but still you got very... rid of those, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, we we donated, donated them, everything. and that's a way to resist the temptation mm-hmm. as well. I think that's really cool. I mean, just thinking about this list and thinking about the fact that it, it worked. There's one last finding that I think is really interesting when it comes to self control, mm-hmm. which is the power of self forgiveness when you screw up. So Michael Wall and his team did a study called I Forgive Myself, Now I Can Study. Hmm. And they found that students who forgave themselves for procrastinating were less likely to procrastinate. Interesting. What do you make of that? It makes sense because it just feels like it's piling on. So once you take on the, oh, I haven't studied, why should I start? I already didn't study. There's no point. I'm just, so it's just kind of like it, it piles on itself. So to to be able to forgive yourself for doing something like that or, or, or like not working out. Oh, I already didn't work out yesterday. If I work out today, it's what's one more day. And then you right. start like just piling it on. And then the next thing you know, you, you know, you can't button up your jeans and you, you look like a balloon in a sweatshirt. Why are you saying you? I'm saying you specifically. <laughs> you, the, the formal, you know, the royal you. <laughs> but, but if you forgive yourself, you're like, you know what? So what? You didn't work out. Get your ass back in there. Yeah. Get back on the thing and, and just The other bust thing through. they think is that when you feel a lot of guilt for for procrastinating, let's say, or for breaking a promise to yourself, you start to associate whatever that behavior is with something really negative. So if mm-hmm. every time I don't study, I feel really guilty. Now oh, I yeah. start thinking of studying and I feel bad. Yeah. Whereas I forgive myself and it's more neutral. I could see that. As we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to forgive yourself for? Nothing. I'm completely guilt-free. fantastic so that's it y'all thank you for listening to talk psych to me me.